Has the church missed a critical element of 1 Corinthians 7 that would allow for an amazing expansion of the grounds for biblical divorce? What should a Christian woman do if her husband is physically abusive? Can she divorce him? Can you divorce your husband for watching porn? What about gambling? Maybe smoking pot? Has the church been wrong about divorce for 2,000 years? What did Jesus say? What did Paul say? Today is December 10th, 2019, and you're listening to the Reformed Rant. I am ranting about divorce within the Christian ethic. Specifically, I am responding to Wayne Grudem's announcement that he has changed his mind on divorce. The church, apparently, has had it wrong for 2,000 years, and Dr. Grudem explains why. things to disclose. The first thing I want to disclose is that I am a divorced and remarried uh, man. So some people would say, um, you're biased. Well, yeah, I think I I'm probably am biased. And I think anybody who comes to this subject is going to be biased by something, either an experience or by the Word of God. I would like to think that I am biased probably by both, having gone through a divorce that I believe, according to Scripture, was illicit. And I would also like to think that I am biased by what the Bible teaches about this subject. Part of my issue here with this is that the church fails to see the significance of what it's doing. The church uh, got all up in arms about gay marriage and screamed 
gay marriage is, is not ethical, moral, is not a thing because it violates God's design for marriage. Well, I have news for you. Illicit divorce also violates God's design for marriage. The church goes berserk, goes to war over gay marriage, screaming bloody murder. But for decades, that same church has tolerated illicit divorce without even whispering discipline or excommunication, hardly ever. I mean, it is so rare, it's a joke. So don't run your mouth about gay marriage if you're going to open up all these reasons for divorce that are absolutely contrary to the clearest teachings of Jesus himself and of the Apostle Paul. And a prepositional phrase isn't going to turn that 2,000-year-old view, actually older than that, on its head. It just isn't. So, yeah, that is, that is the one thing. The other thing that people need to know is that I, my, uh, my views on physical abuse is that um, if this is just my thinking, and this is, I'm sure it's, <laughs> any pastor listening to this is going to say, well, that's, that's probably a sinful thought, Ed. You should work on that. Um, yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm not going to deny that. But I would like to gather together three or four guys anytime I see abuse taking place, physical abuse. Serious physical abuse? All physical abuse is serious. Drag the guy somewhere and just give him a serious man-to-man talking to. I have absolutely zero tolerance for that kind of nonsense. None. Not even a little. Um, all right, so we're going to jump into Wayne Grudem's article on divorce. If I can swing over to, you know, I can't record and turn off these notifications at the same time for some reason. I still hear the little beeps come in, so I apologize for that. Try to figure out how to do that. All right, so... Does the Bible permit divorce for more reasons than adultery? Well, let's just go back to divorce and remarriage in the Bible. We'll start with Jesus quickly. This is just a brief run through. And then move to Paul. And we're going to spend some time in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then I'm going to talk about... Uh, Wife, the practice of wife beating going all the way back to the 8th century in Rome. I'm going to talk about the practice of wife beating among the Jews only to illustrate that it was not something that Paul would have been unfamiliar with. And then we're going to talk briefly about what can you do if you're in this situation. And this is not... This is not intended to be advice or counsel, all right? Uh, so I want to make certain that people don't take this as, oh, this is a good substitute for me sitting down with my pastor or my elders 
and getting godly counsel on what I should do in this particular situation. That is not what this is. This is dealing with what the Bible teaches about divorce. What are the legitimate grounds for the termination of a marriage where a brother or sister in Christ is no longer in bondage to, uh, and in bondage would be the kind of bondage that a marital relationship places you in so that you cannot be with another person. You are bound to that person. Um, so we'll, we'll uh, talk a little bit about that. But I do want to help you think a little bit better about this issue in what I think is a more biblical and a much more balanced approach that I'm seeing right now. We could argue all day long about why the change in Grudem. We could speculate about hashtag me too. We could speculate about feminism, social justice, the you know feminist liberation theology that's influencing the church, the feminism that's crept into the churches. Um, we could we could talk about that, and I am not naive enough to think that had a, that that has that that doesn't even come into play at all. That would be foolish for anyone to think that that's the case. That is silly. But I'm not going to deal with those things. The motivation we're just going to place on the shelf. I'm just going to deal with the facts of what the Scripture teaches about this, and then you can look at those facts, and you can either decide that the Bible is wrong, what you're going to have a really hard time doing is coming up with a clear teaching from the Bible that supports this idea that Grudem is arguing for, because the Bible is pretty clear on the matter of, of divorce and remarriage. You see, when it comes to things that are sinful, the Bible's clear. It isn't ambiguous. It's crystal clear on how not to sin. Other things, not quite so clear. Rapture of the church, eschatology, there are things that it's not quite so clear about. But these things are not related to immoral behavior. Divorcing your spouse is directly related to moral behavior. And on those issues, the Bible is always, always clear. All right. Now, if we want to see the grounds for divorce, we start first with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. And that is basically one ground for divorce. And that is um, sexual immorality or adultery. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, marries and marries another woman, commits adultery, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 19. Now, the disciples were so shocked at Jesus' position on divorce that they responded by saying, Matthew records it in verse 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man and the wife is like this, it is better not to marry. And Jesus went on to, to say, basically, yeah, you're, you're right. If you have the gift, 
then you are better off not marrying, which Paul also echoes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is where I'm going to go to. So Jesus says, the only reason that you have for terminating the marriage, the only legitimate reason at that time is divorce. Now, the Apostle Paul adds a second legitimate terminating event for a marriage. And that is when the unbeliever divorces the believer. So you have one person in the in the new covenant, another person not in the new covenant, and the person who is not in the covenant, the person who is an unbeliever, who is unregenerate, divorces the believer. And this happened most of the time at this time in ancient Rome uh, by them just leaving. They didn't have the kind of legal system that we have. So uh, if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you start with the, the, the text of Scripture that we're looking at is begins with the verse 12. Now, contextually, you have to look at what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There are a number of issues going on in the Corinthian church. These issues, this letter, is a response of Paul to the Corinthians who wrote him and asked a ton of questions. And as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there seems to be some idea in Corinth that because you're now a new creation in Christ, because you're now born again, because old things have passed away, because new things have come, the Corinthians seem to have this idea that they need to turn the world upside down and change everything that they have control over because their life's all changed. So now they have to do everything differently, including, well, if you're married, maybe you should get divorced and not be married any longer because being married is part of your old life. Um, including um, things like, uh, well, you were having sex with your wife before. Now maybe uh, you, sh you shouldn't. Maybe, maybe you don't have to divorce, but you shouldn't be engaging in, in sex. Um, if you're a slave, maybe you, maybe you shouldn't be a slave anymore. Um, it's so on and so forth. These ideas are running around in the Corinthian church. you got to remember that this church is 50 miles from Athens, uh, Greek philosophy is absolutely predominant here. People are thinkers. Um, and so now you've got the, the, the new uh, message of the gospel that has, that has come into their lives. They've been changed. And um, the old way of thinking uh, is kind of having all types of different influences on how they think a Christian should live. And Paul is having to deal with it, and it, it, it is expressing itself here in the area of marriage. And that's what's happening. Now, Paul is, has, has given instructions to those who are uh, married but maybe not having sex. He's giving instructions to widows and single people. It's better if you can be like me and remain single, but because of immorality, uh, each man is to have his own wife. If you don't have the gift of sexual uh, celibacy, uh, singleness, right, um, 
if God has not called you to be a eunuch and you have a desire that's there that's natural, then you need to be married. That's the issue uh, earlier in the, in, the, in the text. And then he gives instructions to the marriage. I think we come to the text that's really the one that uh, concerns us, and that is beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, where he says, But to the rest, I say, not the Lord. Now, he has just told the married folks that the, the husband cannot leave the wife, and the, li the wife must remain with the husband. If the wife leaves, she has to remain unmarried, uh, which is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 19 that caused the disciples to go, oh my gosh, uh, you know, it freaked them out. This would be very freaky as well. Uh, the Corinthian church would find this very like, wait, what? Uh, you, you, you have to remain single if you leave this person? Um, and for a woman, this would be absolutely devastating extremely devastating because of that culture what is it's not like our culture where women uh, are self-supporting they don't need a husband m many of them um, <clears throat> and so they would be facing a life of poverty starvation uh, prostitution um, and so the idea of remaining single to a woman in these circumstances would be extremely unattractive. And it would be a deterrent for her to leave her husband. And people don't quite understand this, but you need to slow down and pay attention to what Paul is doing here. He's not giving people willy-nilly permission to just abandon the marriage and ignore the commandment. That's not what he is doing. All right. He says, to the rest I say, not the Lord. That is, I'm not quoting Jesus. He's not saying, these are my commandments, not the commandments of the Lord. That's not what he's saying. These are the commandments of God. If any brother, any, the Greek word tis, the uh, indefinite pronoun, which is inherently plural because it, it, it refers to a category. Any brother, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him. He must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send him away, send her husband away. She must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her hus believing husband, for otherwise your children were un are unclean, but now they are holy. In other words, G uh, Paul is saying that the relationship and the family now that one of the one of the one of the spouses is in the new covenant as a believer, that family now is a unit that comes under God's guidance. As a Christian husband or wife, you don't have to separate yourself from your pagan family of unbelievers. That family is now recognized as a family institution in the eyes of God and should be treated the very same way as an entire family of believers. You don't need to leave. They are not contaminating you. 
They are not making you unholy. They're not interfering with your covenant relationship with God. You're thinking wrong about this, church, Paul is saying to the Corinthians. All right. We don't, because we're not thinking like the Corinthians were thinking, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and, and thinking like modern Americans are thinking, and we think Paul's addressing issues in a church that thinks like we think, and he isn't. We have to go back in time and think the way they were thinking, at least understand how they were thinking about this in order to understand what Paul was doing with what he was saying here. Okay. Now the big, let me go back. The big rub here is in, in, in cases like this or in cases such as this in verse 15. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister, go back over the brother or sister. This is a plural category. Paul is not referring to a single incident here. He is referring to going back to that indefinite pronoun over on Verse 12, if any, tis, the Greek would be a tis, if any brother, this, is, this applies to sister, so if any unbelieving spouse leaves, let them leave. In this case, no brother or sister is under bondage, but God has called us to peace. God has called us to peace. So Gruden makes a lot of this Greek, this prepositional phrase in the Greek that is rendered in such cases. In tois to oi to utois. Right? That's the Greek expression. In Tois, toy u tois. One of those odd, it's got two diphthongs coming together and they're side by side, and that's always a challenge to pronounce. Um, not always, but in many cases it is. <clears throat> so Grudem looks at this text, he goes out and he, he makes a lot of this. Now, uh, I already published an article in response to, to Wayne Grudem's uh, research on this, so I'm not going to get into that so much. Um, I am going to respond to some of the comments that have been made, some of the reaction that we've had concerning that article <clears throat> and the motivation maybe behind it. I can't read Wayne Grudem's heart. I respect Wayne Grudem. I appreciate the work he's done. This is not an attempt on my part to slander a good brother in Christ. Uh, Grudem has taken up a position that uh, for, for whatever reason he took up that position, um, it's wrong and it's dangerous. And it is, it, it 
has the potential to influence people to engage in sin. So this is one of those things where as someone who's handling the text, as someone who's, who's speaking to the churches, and as someone that the churches use, they use Grudem stuff. In fact, I have his systematic theology, and I have his massive volume on Christian ethics, um, which disagrees with, he disagrees with himself. Grudem in 2018 rejected the argument that Grudem of 2019 makes about divorce. So <clears throat> what I am going to do is add some things to, that were not in my article. One of those things is the uh, ancient practice of wife beating. It was, first of all, permitted by Jewish rabbis. The most useful source uh, to study wife beating is known as the Respana literature. Uh, there are a variety of attitudes found in the Respana literature towards wife beating. Okay, While there are sources in this literature that declare wife beating unlawful, there are others that justify it under certain circumstances. Gratuitous wife beating, striking a wife without a reason, is unlawful and forbidden by all. Period. End of discussion. Rabbinic sources are in general, general agreement about the beating of good wives who do not deserve beating. However, the attitude of rabbinic sources toward bad wives, wives who do not behave in the good as a good woman should, uh, their attitude's ambivalent. Uh, wife beating is occasionally sanctioned if it is for the purpose of chastisement or education. Now, a bad wife, a bad wife is one who does not perform the duties required of her by Jewish law. Um, one who behaves immodestly, uh, one who curses her parents, curses her husband or her in-laws. Uh, rabbis regularly advise men to restrict their wives to the home and be responsible for educating them. That's the husband who owns his wife is given a great amount of latitude in educating her. In this view, it is permissible. It was permissible at that time and acceptable to beat one's wife in order to keep her in line. The rabbis who justify beating see it as part of the overall duty of a husband to chastise his wife for educational purposes. This was a fact of Jewish history, all right? A fact of Jewish history. The majority of rabbis held this view. Only the minority of rabbis thought that wife beating should not be allowed, period. A minority of the rabbis. Beating one's wife was also permitted by Roman law. During the reign of Romulus in Rome, which is going all the way back to the 8th century, wife beating is accepted and condoned under the laws of chastisement. Under these laws, the husband has absolute rights to physically discipline his wife. Since by law, a husband is held liable for crimes committed by his wife, this law was designed to protect the husband from harm caused by the wife's 
actions. These laws permit the husband to beat his wife with a rod or switch as long as its circumference is no greater than the girth of the base of a man's right thumb. And this is where we get the rule of thumb from. You've heard the expression rule of thumb? (laughs) Oddly enough, this is where it it actually comes from. The tradition of these laws is perpetuated in English common law and throughout most of Europe. Um, changed somewhat in the 3rd century B.C., late 3rd century B.C., but only insofar as women could sue for being beaten unjustly. But beating was still justifiable. The Christian church for centuries vacillated um, between support of wife beating and encouraging husbands to be more compassionate and using moderation in their punishment uh, of their wives. Um, A a medieval Christian scholar uh, actually wrote the rules of marriage in support of uh, wife beating. Cherbabino Cherbabino of Siena uh, in the 1400s. So <clears throat> you, you see this also as late as the 1500s where um, wife beating was accepted for correctional purposes and then it started to turn the corner. My point in saying all this is that the, the really big hubbub here that Wayne Grudem is, is doing is he's introducing grounds for divorce that extend far beyond anything the scripture teaches. Divorce is a big deal. To get a divorce, to divorce your spouse against the divine command is a sin. It is a sin that should merit church discipline, just like adultery or anything else. Uh, in fact, you would probably say divorce is worse than adultery because of the permanent damage it's doing to the sacred institution of marriage. Adultery is a is temporary. It is a sin that can be repented of and, and forgiven. In most cases, divorce, it could be repented of, but in the overwhelming majority of cases, it's permanent. And it is a very big deal. So to advise someone that yet you don't have to pay attention to what Jesus said or what Paul said. We've got this other list of reasons that we've come up with because we think we have found some hidden principle for uh, what is considered to be a healthy marital relationship that if those principles are violated, you have all kinds of other grounds that you can call on and divorce your spouse. Now, we already know that divorce is a major problem in the church. It has been for decades, and the church has done nothing to correct that problem. She really hasn't. Uh, we, we throw people into counseling, and then uh, the counseling is absolutely littered with feminist ideologies. Oh, you have to, uh, the, the man is told, you have to, you have to find her love language or um, you have to be uh, more gentle and sensitive and kind and, and you have to uh, co-lead with your wife and 
you shouldn't have her on such a tight budget. And the overwhelming majority of marital counseling uncritically assumes that the woman is right. She's just a gentle, helpless victim. And the man is insensitive and uh, harsh and cold and distant and unloving and not tender and so on and so forth. And he's the problem. And in fact, if you listen to some of these modern evangelical women talk, uh, they would lead you to believe that no woman would ever divorce uh, a defective man. That if, the, if he's a good man, she's going to stay with him no matter what. Well, what, when you think about that, what, what's the error in that? The error in that ignores the fact that it wasn't just man who was born into sin now after the fall. It, was, it, is, it is women and it also ignores the fact that women actually led the way. The minute Eve took the leadership position, she immediately sinned and was deceived by, by the devil. Amazing. Interesting, right? Okay, so Wayne Grudem has created a list that is unfortunate because it does nothing to help the crisis of divorces or of divorce in the churches, and pastors have to stand with one voice and boldly condemn this position and resist the pressures of pagan culture to pervert, pervert God's word uh, concerning his commandment, his prohibition, prohibition against divorce, except for cases of adultery and cases where the unbeliever divorces the believer because the unbeliever has not submitted themselves to the law of God. So here's the list that Grudem gives us. Extreme, prolonged, verbal, and relational cruelty. Verbal and relational cruelty. That is destroying the spouse's mental and emotional stability. Relational cruelty. I'm not sure. I mean, these terms, these, these, the problem with this list is the ambiguity bound up in the list because one woman may say that's verbal cruelty, and another woman may say, no, it's, it's not. Uh, one man may look at this and say that's verbal and relational cruelty, and another man may say that it's, it's not. So what is the standard for defining these terms? Well, I can, I can guarantee you what it's going to be. American culture. That's going to be the standard. What Americans categorize as verbal and relational cruelty is going to be imported into the text of Scripture. And that's then going to be turned around and aimed at men and women who want to please God, and it will be used to get them to behave in a way that is actually submitting to pagan values, not biblical ones. That's what's happening. It's like political correctness. Loving Jesus used to mean something and does mean something in the text of Scripture. But loving Jesus in American culture means something completely different. For starters, it means that you are completely infected with political correctness. And if you don't behave 
in a politically correct manner, then you're unloving and you're unkind and you're rude. And that's not in keeping with the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, now some people who are talking this way and who are allowing this kind of influence to come into the church should know better. But there's a ton of people out there doing it who, I'll be honest with you, they're just absolute morons. They don't pick up their Bible. They don't read it. They're not critical thinkers. And they are imposing all of this on modern Christians, thinking that modern American pagan values uh, define ancient biblical fruit of the Spirit. And they don't. Another item on the list is credible threats of physical harm or murder of the spouse and children. That's a little bit less ambiguous. Credible threats, right? Uh, Third, incorrigible or recalcitrant or incurable, whatever, drug, drug or alcohol addiction accompanied by regular lies, deceptions, thefts, and or violence. What if you're engaging in lying, deception, thefts, uh, and you don't have drug or alcohol addiction? And what kind of drug or alcohol addiction are you talking about? There are what we call functioning alcoholics who are addicts, but they are highly functional. Can the wife toss them out? Can the husband toss her out because she has to have her scotch and rocks every day, even though she's highly functioning? Where, do, where is this in the text of Scripture? Where does the Bible come up with a list like this? Gambling addiction is another one that, that Grudem lists. And he says it's gambling addiction that's led to massive overwhelming indebtedness. What if it's gambling addiction that has not led to massive overwhelming indebtedness? It isn't the consequences of a behavior that makes it sinful. It's the behavior itself that is sinful. So gambling addiction would be related to greed. Greed. So would it be fair to say then that you could divorce your husband if he's greedy? What if your husband is so greedy that he works 65, 70, 80 hours a week all the time and he doesn't give you any attention? He's almost like a completely absent husband. Can you divorce him over over something like that? It seems cruel to the relationship for a husband to act like that. Shouldn't you be able to divorce him over that? Hmm. Another uh, item on the list, the final item on the list, is pornography addiction. Grudem seems to think that if a man is viewing pornography, and I'm not this addiction thing, I just forget the word addiction. He's looking at pornography on a very regular basis. It's part of his life. This is sexual immorality. I mean, you don't have to be addicted to adultery to be committing adultery. You don't have to be an addict. You don't have to be an adultery addict, a sex addict. You just have to be committing adultery. 
So if you're going to lump, por- if you're going to put pornography under Jesus's pro- Jesus's prohibition against divorce, except for sexual immorality, then it's any kind of pornography whatsoever, addicted or not. Right? Grudem wants to add the word addiction because when you say addiction, it gives it a, a completely different nature. It takes it to a whole new level, makes it different. But if pornography addiction, my point is this, folks, if pornography addiction is the kind of sexual morality Jesus was referring to in Matthew 19, then pornography viewing, period, would also fall under that category. Right? So the word addiction is uh, really a red herring here. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's attached to pornography for altogether different reasons to make, make it sound more conservative, right? It's gotta be more extreme pornography as opposed to just looking at pornography on occasion. Rubbish, it's complete rubbish. So this, this list Grudem comes up with all on the basis, all on the basis of this prepositional phrase in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, in tois, toi utois, uh, that appears one time in the New Testament used by Paul here. And is you can see it used, Grudem's research used 52 times outside. Again, I addressed that in my paper. I'm not going to address it. In my article, I'm not going to address it here. So, <clears throat> based on that prepositional phrase, Grudem just opens up the floodgates. Even though Paul could have listed these things. And, since we're talking about the institution of marriage, something so basically fundamental to, to human society, and especially to Christians, that, that Jesus, Jesus prohibited it, prohibited the determination of this institution and only gave one exception, sexual immorality, adultery, real adultery, not porn, not looking at dancers, not going to the, the nudie bars, not uh, looking at a magazine, no. Actual, real adultery. That has been the historic tradition and understanding of the church from the beginning. This idea is new, as well as this entire list of grounds for divorce. Now, I personally think this is coming from pressures in the pagan world from feminism. Hashtag me too. Uh, and I, th- I think basically that Grudem wrote this really good book on Christian ethics. I disagree with a couple of aspects of what he's saying about divorce and remarriage, but they're very minor. Uh, nevertheless, the backlash from what he wrote in this book, because he took the traditional conservative position on divorce, uh, I could imagine would have been uh, significant. I would imagine that people would have went to him and said, dude, uh, you know, in modern American pagan culture, if you tell a woman she can't divorce her husband, even if he's abusing her in any way, shape, or form, um, it's going to hurt the church. It's going to make the church seem very 
insensitive, uncaring, cold, and we're going to lose credibility in the eyes of the pagan culture because of our views uh, in this area. And those views are linked to what the pagan American culture thinks are our misogynistic views. Patriarchy. Patriarchy. It is a very dirty word in American culture. That's what this lends itself to. So these leaders in the SBC and in evangelicalism are trying to distance the church from patriarchy and in an effort to do that would turn around and put pressure on someone like Grudem who holds to this position because it smacks of of patriarchy and uh, would be accused of being misogynistic, right? And... I think that prompted Grudem to go back and look, and he found that prepositional phrase, and he made more of that prepositional phrase than any other scholar or theologian has ever done in the history of New Testament hermeneutics. That is a fact. And you have to ask the question, what was the motivation? What are you doing here? What did you see here? Uh, So the, the really, really big problem is... When you open this door, Grudem opens the door, but he wants to only open it part of the way to allow for his list. But what would Grudem say to someone who came along and wanted to walk through the same door with a different list that they came up with? Say, for example, um, a Christian man is married to an unbelieving woman and she doesn't want to have sex with him ever. Isn't that relational cruelty? This man is now confined to a life of celibacy because his unbelieving wife doesn't want him to touch her because he's a Christian. He doesn't honor the gods. Stay away from me. Can he divorce her? What about a wife who is verbally abusive to her husband, constantly berating him, calling him names. I suppose he can divorce her. There's all kinds of what-ifs here that people can come up with and say that it's relational cruelty, essentially destructive of the marriage, uh, harms the other person, and therefore you you can divorce. Look, as a Christian, you must recognize that unbelievers hate God. We're going to say nasty things to you because you're a Christian. You need to place your faith and trust in Christ. There have been courageous women throughout the history of the church who have been who have been martyred and all kind and all raped and all beaten and imprisoned, all kinds of things done to them because of their Christian faith. And mentally and emotionally, they stood firm. Spiritually, they stood firm. Just because you are you are a woman does not mean you cannot be mentally tough, especially in Christ. Doesn't mean that you can't look at that man who is an unbeliever through the eyes of a Christian and think like a believer and recognize that that man is is of uh, is of the he's a child of the devil. And Satan may be using him to harm you. You look to Christ. You're a child of God. 
Be strong in your faith. These, these commandments in the New Testament where Paul is saying things like be strong, stand firm, and all of these things aren't just to men. They're to women as well. Okay, There's no reason for you to allow the words of an unbelieving man to create all this emotional and, emotional and mental uh, strain for you. The Holy, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can create in you the ability to stand up to that kind of pressure and not wilt and, and actually believe the stupid things that are coming out of that unbelieving man's mouth. Physical and emotional, phys, or let's go back to physical abuse. So what, what, what should a woman do? Well, here's what I think. This is not advice. This is not counseling. If you're a woman and you're listening to this, do not consider this to be formal direction guidance counseling. This is not that. This is my opinion about how the situation should probably be thought about and handled uh, if it's happening in real life. And by the way, uh, mo the overwhelming majority of divorces, both in the church and out of the church, have nothing to do with physical abuse. It's at, it's, it's, it's at the bottom of the list. Like the top four or five, it's the, it's the last one. It's, I fell out of love. The number one reason is compatibility. And that's in the church as well as out of the church. Other reasons are things like money and then adultery. Right? Those are the big ones. Incompa incompatibility, money, adultery. And then the numbers drop way down when you get into the area of abuse. I mean, way down. What should a woman who is being physically abused do to protect herself? Number one, you have to call the police. If he's hitting you, you have to call the police. You have to remove either him from the home or yourself from the home relocate. You have a right not to be murdered. The, the Ten Commandments give you that right. You don't have to stay there and submit to a man who is going to murder you against God's commandment. So remove yourself from harm's way. This is temporary. Immediately engage the help of your elders. Not one of your, your, your female friends who's going to tell you, in most cases, to just divorce the guy and get on with your life. She's not going to give you godly advice in most cases. There are very few godly women, even in the churches, who are going to give you advice that is consistent with what the Bible teaches. Most women in the churches are horribly infected with the pagan culture, and especially feminism the overwhelming majority of them. Allow the elders to navigate the territory. Go to them. Let them give you advice. Let them direct you. Let them guide you through this. Let them work with this man. And in that process, which could take a considerable amount of time, if the husband repents, you've won your husband. But he cannot return until he repents and commits to not beating you. If he does come back and he does it again, you put the man in jail. He's, he's effectively now, if the, if the man is put into jail, he has abandoned the marriage. He's left the marriage. He has essentially divorced 
you. He's definitely not content to dwell with you, beating on, beating on you for, for no good reason. So this is, this is the best way to handle this. No, you cannot just pick up and go out and file for a divorce. You have to go through the proper steps. Verbal, emotional, and psychological ab abuse do not rise to this level. Again, abuse is, I think when I looked at the numbers, it was somewhere around the 5% range of uh, listed as reasons for why people were divorcing. The half of the divorces, I think 48, 49% are around R4 incompa incompatibility. Um, <clears throat> so as I said before, words, consider the unbelieving source of the ungodly behavior. Tie your worth to Christ. Consider the examples of those in Scripture who suffered for Christ. Love your husband in hopes of winning him to Christ. Pray for grace to endure the evil. There are tons of Christian women who have come to Christ and were married to a man who has not come to Christ. And they were unhappy before some of them, some of them not. But now, on the other side of the conversion, they're very unhappy because their husband won't go to church with them and they hound him to go to church and they hound him to read the Bible with them. And uh, they just create, they create a very bad environment, um, trying to lead their husband or manipulate or force their husband to accept Christ. And this is because of the bad training that exists, or the no training that exists, the, and the bad thinking that exists in the churches. The churches are filled with Pelagians and semi-Pelagians. The churches are filled with heretics and, and people who have not been truly converted to Christ. It's a moral club, moral social club, that has the name of Jesus above the door, a Baptist or a Presbyterian or whatever you call it. That's what it is. And, you know, people who want to, to be moral and want to hold on to some traditional aspects of their life, they go to church because uh, they want to be a good moral person. And this is how I was raised. And I want to feel good about myself, ethically speaking. And so this is what I do. Uh, but there isn't an ounce of genuine faith in their entire being. Uh, and that's just, that's just the way that it is. And this, this condition, this state of affairs, leads to all kinds of problems. So if a woman is being physically abused, locate away from the physical abuse, protect yourself, call the cops, bring your elders in, trust the elders to guide the process. Don't run out and file for a divorce uh, from the unbelieving man. And if the man professes to be Christ, he has to go through counseling and potentially church discipline. Uh, in that process, this man uh, will, if he's an unbeliever, he's either going to repent and come to faith in Christ, uh, he may change his behavior. He may not repent of uh, his overall sin. He may not come to Christ, but he may stop with the abuse. That is perfectly acceptable and possible. One thing is for sure, if you refuse to be around him uh, while he is insisting on behaving this way, 
as a man, he has sexual needs that he is going to meet. And what will typically end up happening is this man will begin to cheat now if he isn't doing it already. Uh, I would imagine that a decent percentage of men who are who physically abuse their wives are already cheating. Uh, but if they're not, and they're not uh, in the in the in a in a place where they're getting sex on a regular basis, they're going to go get it somewhere. Any guy listening to this podcast shaking his head right now, going, "Yeah, that's true, probably true." Yeah. Uh, and in that case, you do have clear grounds for uh, for adultery, so or for uh, divorce. No, you cannot divorce your husband because he inflicts substantial harm on the marriage, uh, engages in relational cruelty, as Grudem calls it, whatever that means, or is engaging in behavior that you think is destructive of the marriage. That is nowhere found in the Bible. It's not in Jesus. It's not in Paul. It's not in Peter or anywhere else in the text. Jesus says the only way to terminate a marriage is if the other person is committing adultery. And Paul adds to that and says, if the other person is an unbeliever and they terminate the marriage, then the believer is free to marry whomever they will, but only in the Lord. You have to marry a fellow believer. All right, thank you for listening to the Reformed Rant today. If you have any questions or comments you, and you're listening to the Reformed Rant in the app, you can leave comments in the app itself. You can go over to Reformed Reasons. Uh, it'll be the podcast. This episode will be posted over there. You can leave messages uh, there, comments there. You can go to Reformation Charlotte Facebook pages. There are two of them. Um, join both of them. They are a place where like-minded believers who hold to conservative Christian uh, beliefs come together for fellowship and discuss all kinds of issues, iron sharpening iron. So a very, very uh, good place to, uh, to plug in and get connected. Uh, once again, stay in the fight, keep the faith, continue to pro proclaim the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, continue to live your life like the city uh, that is on a hill, a light that cannot be hid, just like Jesus commanded us to do. Take care. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com I ride east every other Friday But if I had it my way a day would not be wasted on this drive And it wants so bad to hold you Son, there's things I haven't told you Your mom and me couldn't get along So I drive And I think about my life And wonder that I slowly die inside Every time I turn that truck around Right at the Georgia line And I count the days and the miles back home to you On that high